Hello everybody, I'm Bob Main. Welcome to another episode of today's survival show. Helping you do what you can with what you have wherever you are. This is episode 229 of A Practical Show, folks. I don't go tinfoil hat on you. I just try to keep things rooted in common sense. All that tinfoil hattish stuff is not really my style. Well, this week I am going to talk about living it, learning it, and teaching it. And so is my guest. I have a special guest coming on. I'm going to introduce him shortly. But do you live the preparedness lifestyle? Do you learn the preparedness lifestyle? And do you teach the preparedness lifestyle? Now, when I say teach, do I mean do classes? Not necessarily. Do I mean a podcast? Not necessarily. Do I mean even start a blog or anything like that? No, not really. Are you teaching it to friends, to family members, to associates? Even if you're just spreading the word, that's an important part of building uh, quite a few more preppers in this world. So live it, learn it, and teach it is pretty much, that's the main topic of this episode. And my guest is going to help me drive that point home. So I had a chance to interview White Bear. Now, White Bear is the owner and the founder and the instructor of the Primitive Living Skills School. Now, if you remember back in episode 206, I interviewed him, and he talked about bringing primitive living skills to life and giving it an application today. A lot of people think, ugh, primitive living. Ugh, geez. What does primitive living have to do with the way we live today? It has a lot to do with it. There's a lot of the concepts of primitive living that we can apply to today. So I asked him to come on and talk about that and talk about how we need to live this, how we need to learn it, and how we need to teach it. And that's preparedness and survival that I'm talking about. So let's not waste any time. Let's get right into my interview. Well, my special guest back on the show again for a third time is White Bear. Hey, welcome back to the show. Hey, Bob. How you doing? Pretty good. Now, for people who are new to my show, I want to let people know your actual name is White Bear, right? Yes, that is my Lakota name, which I have had legally changed um, because I'm very much into the Native ways and uh, I'm very passionate about the Native rights and freedoms and whatnot. And uh, uh, decided to legally have my name changed to my Lakota name. That is awesome. And you are the founder and the owner of Primitive Living Schools, or excuse me, Primitive Living Skills School. Yes. Yeah, which you're in Montana. Yes, Western Montana, and uh, been doing more with less since 1982. So I, I am the oldest uh, continually operated Primitive Living Skills School in the country. What I think is really cool is you live this stuff. You live it every day, which is, you know, the main topic of this podcast we're going to talk about soon. Uh, but what I think is even better, not only do you live this every single day, but you teach it and you teach it out there in the wilderness where you live, right? Primitive living skills. You know, back in episode 206, you were my guest, and we talked about how primitive living meets daily life. And, you know, I, a lot of people really, I got some good comments on that on that show. So I want people to know that, you know, White Bear's not just on here talking about this. He, he lives it. 
Yeah, it's to me, it's it's my passion, and it's something that I've uh, I've always had an interest in since I've been a little child. Actually, I was always in the woods. Uh, I love being in the woods. I was, I'm, you know, I hear people all the time. Well, it's scary in the woods, and I'm afraid when I'm in the woods. And I have never once in my life ever been afraid of being in the woods. Not one single time. I can't say that. <laughs> There's a lot of people that can't say that, but yeah. I, I'm more afraid in the city jungle than I am in the woodland jungle. Well, you got a point there. I mean, in the city jungle, we got to carry lots of guns to keep us safe, especially, you know, I'm in, I'm talking to you right now from downtown Houston, Texas. And, you know, I'm here on business and, you know, no offense to my listener friends in Houston, but I, I don't feel all that safe around here. Yeah, you know, well, I, I tell a lot of people, and I, I know I've said on your show before, but when I go in the woods, if I see a, a grizzly bear, I know what that grizzly bear is going to do to me if it wants to. If I see a mountain lion, I know what it's going to do. When I go in the city, I don't know. The, the predators are disguised because you don't know which ones they are, and you don't know what they're capable of doing. Very good point. That's good. Um, all right, well, you've been getting some interesting questions from students, right? Yeah, I, uh, I started a program, uh, it's almost a year old now, called the Environmentally Sustainable Earth Shelter Program. And I did it because I was doing a lot of consulting with people on, uh, you know, the solar and the use of solar, not only for, like, recreational vehicles, but at, on homes, um, wind turbines, uh, because I've, I've been into building and, and earth shelters and using natural materials uh, for sustainable homes for, you know, many years, 25, 30 years, going, you know, now. Right. And I've been, and, and with the way things are going, people are now more into uh, building smaller homes, building more self-sustainable homes because, you know, they're worried about the power grid going down. They're worried about not having uh, water that's potable. They're worried about, you know, what's going to happen if, you know, an EMP happens, an electromagnetic pulse that so many people have been talking about. Are these things feasible? Now, you know, I, I, I don't like, to, like you, I don't like to be tinfoil hat, but these are things that are possible. You know, we have problems with North Korea. We have problems with Egypt. We're having all kinds of, of world crisis going on. And who knows at what point one of these dictators of these countries is going to say, yeah, let's push this button and do it. So is it possible? Yeah. Is it, is it real? Yes, it is. So people are now starting, I think, to wake up more. And they're wanting to know, how can I be more self-sustainable? So I've been working with a lot of people, and I get a lot of questions about, well, you know, do you really live this lifestyle, or are you just, you know, teaching people how to? You know, and there's, there are a lot of people that are doers, a lot of people that are just teachers, and I do live this lifestyle. And uh, people want to know, well, if you have all these preps, do you know how to use them, and do you use them, and do you practice with them? And my answer is, absolutely, you have to, because when when the stink hits the fan, if you, you can have all the preps in the world, you could have the best bunker shelter in the world, all completely set up, but if you don't know how to use the items that you have stocked, when, when the stink hits the fan and you're in disarray and everything's discombobulated, you're not going to have a clue what to do. You know, it's interesting you say that. I can see people pretty much with these blank looks on their faces wondering okay i got all this stuff i spent all these thousands of dollars now now what do i do with it yeah exactly i uh, one one gentleman in particular 
paid $10,000 for a desalination unit that he has in his house so he can take any water source and he can make it into potable water. But he had no clue how to hook it up, had no clue how to use it, and before I came along, he had it for almost three years and had no clue how to even use it. And after a disaster happens, is the wrong time to try to figure it out. Exactly. Yeah, you can't sit down with the instruction manual and go, okay, now what do I do? If you don't know how to do it beforehand, you're screwed. 10000 bucks he had invested in that thing? $10,000. He could, he could filter approximately 300 gallons per hour water through this desalination station. That would make it potable water from any water source, and he had no clue how to use it. And you taught him? I, I showed him how to hook it up. I showed him how to take the you know the bad water, and make it good. And, you know, he says, "Well, I wasn't sure if it would really work, but I thought, you know, I better have it in case." <laughs> and that, <laughs> I, that's the answer I get so many times. Well, I thought I should have it just in case. Thinking you should have it and actually knowing what to do with it—that's two completely different things. Well, thinking you should have it is the first step, but it's only the first step. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's you know, it's great. He he did all kinds of research. Found out this was the best one. It was all stainless steel, you know, copper. It was all copper plumbing, so it was, you know, the pieces of life. But the copper is antimicrobial, and the stainless steel means there's no bacteria, and you won't have this, and won't have that. It's like that's great, but here it sits in the corner with all the parts and pieces still in the plastic bags, and you're doing nothing with it. Well, I thought it'd be good to have just in case. <laughs> All right. So you teach people how to use what they've got. You and you know you live this. I like some of these questions. So they ask you these questions, and what's your response when somebody asks you know Do you live this lifestyle? I I, I tell them I have I have literally been living this lifestyle since I've been about twelve years old, and you know and obviously I was living with my parents and I was a little boy, but. I did as much of my own. I mean, I started getting into canning food when I was 12. I started getting into uh, hunting and, and learning how to be a, a steward of nature and learning how to be self-reliant as far as getting my own meat, processing my own meat, cooking my own meat, um, drying my own meat. You know, there was all those things that I went through, smoking meat. I mean, I, you know, those, those are things that I've been doing as a lifelong activity. I mean, it's just it's become a way of life. Um, I got into, I learned, I had an uncle that taught me carpentry and, and woodworking. I learned how to build things. I learned how, you know, to do build log homes. I built log homes for a number of years. I've done this stuff because I wanted to learn, if, you know, if I'm going to be self-reliant, and I've always had this self-reliant mindset, I need to know how to do it, and I need to practice it. And, and I do from time to time still, you know, if people need, uh, have a log home that needs to be refurbished or, you know, needs to have work done on it i still will get involved and do that it's it's something that you have to you know even it's like well i can relate it to you like shooting a gun you can have a gun and if it sits in a holster whether it's on your hip or in a drawer if you don't shoot it you lose that technique of learning how to do it how to put your sights on target how to put a bullet down range where you want it to go so it's the same thing with if you're building a home or if you're you know, canning meat or if, you know, whatever you're doing, it's the same thing. If you don't practice it, you lose that memory set, you lose that skill set, and you might as well not even do it. So how do you recommend that people practice and learn the skill set of using and getting the most out of the preps that they have? Well, you know, I, I, I know everybody's not a hunter, but one of the one of the big things is to learn how to how to hunt and gather not only meat but you know wild edibles or any kind of wild vegetables or wild berries. 
Uh, you know, there are places, there are, everybody has woods around them at some point where they could go and they can practice these skills. And, you know, I know a lot of people are, well, I don't have time because I, you know, I have this and my schedule's so full. Well, okay, but when the stink hits the fan, guess what? You're not going to need your schedule. So, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> what's going to happen at that point when you don't have the skills and the knowledge to do what you need to do to survive when things change that drastically? Well, you know, it's interesting. Not only are you going to need your schedule, but now you're going to have a whole new schedule after the stink hits the fan. Yeah, and that, that schedule is going to include you needing to go out and acquire food, acquire water, acquire shelter, acquire uh, clothing, acquire, you know, medical, you know, all that stuff. So my, my thing is, is I would suggest people go out, take a first aid course, learn first aid, practice first aid, get with your family and actually learn how to apply bandages, how to apply gauze, you know, what happens with this kind of laceration or that kind of puncture wound or this kind of cut. You know, what do I need to know to keep it sterile, to keep it, you know, free from getting infected? Those are very important things. Um, one of the things, I, I was a, para, a paramedic for 10 years, and I can't tell you how many times I have seen people in accident scenes that were there before first responders, and they had no clue what to do. Um, I just had an incident about a year and a half ago where I, my wife and I pulled up on a, on a bike accident. A kid had come around the corner and hit this biker that was legally crossing in the crosswalk on his bike. This kid did not yield to the, stop, the stoplight and hit this guy and sent him about 15 feet off of his bike. When I rolled up, people were trying to help him get up and walk around. Wow. And I said, no, 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 put him down now. You know? Yeah. And they were all like, oh, no, he needs to get up. No. No, he doesn't. You don't move them. You leave them where they lie, and you make them as comfortable as possible until a backboard and sea collar and you know the, the rescue uh, rig can get there. Well, and most of the time they could they could hurt the person worse by moving them. Exactly. Yeah. Exa- well, unfortunately, this guy had gotten up and he did not make it. He later perished at the hospital because um, part of his breastbone had fractured and punctured his heart from moving around. Oh. So, but, but my point is, is that this is the kind of thing that happens when it's, it's a chaotic state of events. And now these were people that, that hadn't witnessed the accident, but they rolled up right after. Even people like that, their, their mind becomes focused on that point. They get tunnel vision, and they don't think of the collateral damage they can do. They don't think of the, the uh, surrounding circumstances. They're just focused on, this guy's injured in the middle of the road. We've got to get him out of the road. You know... Let me. I'm going to ask you to go back to something earlier, but let me focus on what you just said right there. A lot of people don't practice and train and put themselves under pressure. You know, on both of my shows, I talk about that. Put yourself under pressure. Do things that are going to get you out of your comfort zone. And because when the stink hits the fan, I don't care what it is. If the if people roll up on an accident, like you just talked about, uh, if a disaster comes through their area, whatever. They're going to be under pressure, and and we all like to think that we're cool, calm, and collected under pressure. But until you're actually in that situation, you, you know you might not be as good as you think you are. Exactly. Uh, how many times do you see on the news on the newscast where a tornado has swept through an area where they didn't expect it, and the people are walking around, they look like zombies, all dazed and confused, not having a clue what happened. Oh yeah, you know all the time. And, and, and if you think about if you think about when the tornado hit versus when the news cameras would have rolled up and started filming, you're looking probably anywhere from 
20 to 60 minutes, and people are still in this state of shock. They're still in this state of what just happened. You can see it. You can see when you see them on camera. They don't. They can't comprehend what just happened to them. So that is, while it can be a serious event, that is, you know, a, a tornado that might rip through a couple of houses is very minute compared to what possibly could happen, like the the uh, the hurricane down in Louisiana back in 2005, or or Sandy, Superstorm Sandy. You know, that was a major devastation, and those people are still reeling from that. And, yep. and and I have friends that have been up there, and I've talked to them, and they said people still don't have a clue what to do or where to go. There, I mean, and it's it's been a year. Yeah, uh, th- and that's amazing to me. It, it, they just don't seem to learn from it. You know, what I would encourage people to do is, especially what you, guys that are listening to this. Well, even gals doesn't matter. If you're the if you're a parent uh, and you've got a family and you are prepping together as a family every once in a while about every three or four months without announcing it just sneak out to your garage or wherever your circuit breaker box is and just turn off all the power to the house and just see what happens just do it unexpectedly and see how your family reacts absolutely now they're going to get mad at you they're going to get they're not going to be happy with you but you know that's a that's a great prepping prepping drill yeah, it, it absolutely is. I mean, you know, don't. It, well, it's like the old fire drills when you were in school. You know, you didn't know when they were coming. Next thing you know, you're being herded outside. Everybody in a straight line, and you know, form form one line and file outside quietly and calmly. And you know, th- those were great drills. But the, but unfortunately, when we get into adulthood, there is no continuance of those drills. I mean, you know, you, offices don't say, "Oh, well, okay, let's do a fire drill and evacuate our employees." They just don't do that stuff, which they should. Yeah, but they don't. No, they don't. They and don't. I, I mean, if you probably, my guess is if you went into any professional office building and you asked out of all the people that worked in that building, my guess would be maybe, maybe a handful of those people could tell you the evacuation procedure for that building. Yeah, probably that's about it. Probably a handful yeah. of them and that's it. Yeah, because people just are so complacent and they just, you know, like, oh, it'll never happen. They, I, I don't understand why especially in today's world and economy, why people are, oh, it'll never happen. I don't understand that mindset, but let me tell you, it will happen and it can happen. It'll never happen, and then when it happens, they go, well, I never thought it would happen, you know. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and, and they're left, you know, they're what I call one of the sheeple. They're left, you know, standing there going, oh, what do I do? <laughs> well, and it, I say this as a joke, but I'm also being somewhat serious when I say there are three types of people. There are those who make it happen, those that watch it happen, and those that don't know what happened. Exactly. They have absolutely no clue, and they're walking around with, like you said, like, with zombies, uh, zombie looks on their faces saying, oh my God, what the heck just happened? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, and, and I've seen it time and time and time again. I, I drove through Katrina after Katrina happened, and it, you know, one part of one part of the area I drove through was mass chaos where people were looting. Yeah. They had, they had National Guard out. They had state police out. They had um, uh, curfews in, strictly enforced. And I was in another part where uh, people were just, you could tell they were like, what am I going to do now? I, you know, it's like they right. lost everything and they had no clue where to go, what to do. They just had these looks on their faces like they were completely zoned out and lost. Right. 
And it's just, and I'm thinking, really? I mean, it, it was bad. I mean, don't get me wrong. It was devastating because what you saw on TV didn't compare to what the actual damage was when you were down in that area. But it's like, okay, now you need to get into your plan of action of, okay, I need to find a shelter. I need to find some food. I need to find some water. I need to get myself together and start, you know, doing something instead of just sitting here going, well, I'm screwed now. You know, I mean. Hold on one second, okay? Okay. <coughs> okay. Sorry. Had a little interruption there. Okay. Um, had a little interruption, little uh, uh, distraction there. We were just on a topic. Refresh my memory, please. We were talking about uh, Katrina, the people that were, you know, not instead of getting their game plan together and, and starting to figure out where they needed to go from there, they were just sitting there lost with this complete look of, I'm just, I'm completely screwed. And, and you know, had like they had no no plans of going anywhere further other than where they were going to sit at that moment. And I just, I don't understand that. I mean... No, I don't either. Now, in fact, let me ask you to go back to something you said several minutes ago. You were talking about that we should learn to go out and hunt and gather food and things like that. What percentage of the food that you eat on a daily basis is food that you've gone out and gathered or hunted? Uh, Roughly 90 to 95%. That's amazing. I mean, that's just, you know, that there, that in and of itself speaks volumes. Yeah, I mean, most, if I don't, some some stuff I trade for, or I do support, like, local farms uh, that grow organic and all-natural food. Um, I will support food co-ops that, that are into the natural food um, because it's healthier for you, obviously, and it helps, it helps sustain the small farmers that are actually out there doing some good, not the big commercial uh, government-subsidized farmers. So some of the, some of the stuff I will do, I'll go and I'll you know I'll shop the, the food co-ops and the small uh, roadside stands and farm markets and whatnot. But um, the rest of it is all uh, all on me and what I do. That's incredible, and, and I think that, like I said, that speaks volumes. That you know you, you truly are living what it is that you're out there teaching. And if I'm going to take a class on doing that, if I'm going to go talk, you know, learn from somebody who's uh, on how to hunt and gather food, I'm, I'm coming out to Western Montana. I'm going to hang with you. Well, I, my thing is, is that uh, if, if, to me personally, if you if you don't live what you teach and what you propagate, then you're a fraud. I mean, it, it, to me, it's, it's that simple. Yep, I agree, hundred you know, percent. I, I mean, it's it's like uh, you know, you you can't uh, you know you can't be. A, uh, I guess you can because you can be a reservist, but I mean, you can't be. A, you can't go to a war. Uh, in Afghanistan to be a part-time soldier and a part-time businessman. You're over there, you're a soldier for the whole time. And it's basically the same type of thing. I mean, this is my life. This is, you know, how I live my life. And it, it's something that, like I said, it's been in me since I've been a little boy. I, uh, you know, I, when I was 12, my mother would search hours for me uh, because I'd be so deep in the woods, you know, building some kind of a little shelter, a little fort, or uh, exploring the, the flora and fauna and what was going on around me. And you know, that was just, I mean, I was just amazed by the size of the trees and the, the different leaves and, and the, the smell of the soil and, you know, the mosses and grasses and just everything. And it's just, it's never left me. It's always been, uh, you know, the major part of my life for I me. Mean, I bet you freaked your mom out a few times. Oh, I, yes, I absolutely did. She was uh, she was quite beside herself uh, trying to find me quite a few times. <laughs> <laughs> You know, um, and earlier, <laughs> that's funny, 
Earlier, just a few minutes ago, we were talking about you know living what it is that you say that you do and and things like that. I don't want people to get the wrong idea. It doesn't have to be on the level like you do it out there in Montana. You know, even if even if people just put away, like I've always said, you know, have a month's worth, um, 30 days worth of food put away, have an emergency fund of a few thousand bucks, have some alternative investments and maybe, uh, you know, a week or two's worth of water stored. At least if you do that, you can teach other people how to do that. Yeah, my my thing is, and what I've, what, uh, I've done with a lot of people is, um, uh, for instance, I have, I have some clients of mine that are apartment dwellers. They live in apartments. And personally, I, I don't get ever living in an apartment. To me, it's like living in a, in a hamster habitat. But <laughs> that's, their, that's their thing. And But I've shown them how to take uh, the, the little five-gallon water jugs and set up a rain catchment right off their deck of their apartment with a little piece of copper rain trough coming down to a copper pipe that that, that uh, goes to a manifold and will fill up these five-gallon jugs, and they can store rainwater. And it's free other than the equipment you need to set it up. But once you set it up, it pays for itself in volumes, literally, volumes of water. So you can, you know, you don't have to run the city water, which I would never drink city water for, my, for anything. I don't care what, you know, it would, it, I would have to distill that water if I got city water. But... Uh, you can store all kinds of water. You can, you know, you can do little container gardening on your deck, so you can grow your own, you know, fruits and vegetables and herbs and things like that. You can cook with right there. So there are things that you can do in your micro environment that will make it easier for you to be self sustainable. Because if the power went out, if the grid went down, you're still going to have your container garden. It's still going to rain. You know, so there's there are things you can do. You can get little solar uh, little solar panels that you can put up on your in your apartment windows that you could put some batteries, twelve volt batteries, in your apartment. You can keep the batteries charged. You could still run your blender, your toaster, your coffee maker, your computer off of that solar system. Right. And it's all it's all portable. So there are things you can do in that environment. I, like I said, I use an apartment because that's a very small self-contained unit that you can do a lot with in that small space. You can. And even if you have a small home like I do, if you have a small home in the suburbs, there's a lot of things that you can do. You know, I mean, there's, there's no reason why you can't have even an inexpensive generator in your garage. Exactly. It doesn't yeah. have to be a fancy, you know, several thousand dollar generator. I mean, if, if you got one of those and you can afford one of those, great. But even if you have just an inexpensive one that you can throw a little bit of gasoline into it and run a few appliances on it, that that's a start. Well, as a matter of fact, my aunt and uncle live have lived in the. My aunt passed away in two thousand nine, but but prior to that, they live. My uncle still lives in the same house they that they bought right after they got married in uh, nineteen fifty seven. And he still lives in that house today. And we took a 5,000-watt Honda generator, put it out in his shed. We dug a trench, ran uh, the PVC electrical conduit, and I wired in their generator to their house so that if the power goes out, which they have quite frequently where they live because it's old, it's old electrical wires, it's an old neighborhood, but he just has to go out, plug it into the wall, start the generator up, flip the 120 uh, volt switch, and he can power his house. He can run his refrigerator, his TV. Uh, he can even run his furnace and air conditioner off of it um, because of the way that we wired it. 
and he's completely you know good to go as far as that goes yeah yeah so. you know even alternative cooking methods too oh absolutely absolutely now why now let me ask you this would you advise this can someone just have a uh, an inexpensive generator in their garage and just use extension cords and run appliances that way well, you can, but the problem is is that um, you have to have the right gauge uh, extension cord, and you're going to be limited on what you can run. So you're going to want to run your major things like a refrigerator, definitely going to want to run, uh, keep your food cold. Right. And it may be a few lights, but you're not going to be able to turn on your, your stereo surround sound and you know your TV and cable and all that. Um, and if you have it electrically wired in, you can still put it in your garage and have it wired into your house. And that way, all you have to do is switch over to the alternate uh, breaker panel, flip on your, you know, start your generator, flip the 120 uh, volt switch, and you could power a lot more things that way. But yeah, you could. Um, you know, you'd want to have a heavy, like a no, no less than 12 gauge extension cord, preferably like a 10 gauge extension cord. And nothing that would be over a hundred foot, preferably fifty foot, but nothing uh, nothing under hundred foot or over hundred foot. I mean, um, so that you don't lose because you're going to lose a lot of power if you, if you uh, go any smaller, any longer distance. Well, my thinking is this: um, you know, for my uh, my needs that I've got are at this point is that I don't care about cable TV, I don't care about computers, I don't care about all that stuff if, if there's a disaster. I care about keeping my food in the freezer frozen and my food in the refrigerator cold as long as I can. Okay, so here's my question. Instead of investing in the generator and the fuel to run the generator, why not take that money and invest in some solar panels that will give you free electricity for however long you need it? Good idea. Because you can, you can hook up a battery bank, and you can go. You can store power in that battery bank while you're also powering your appliances in your house, and it's free solar light. Yep, true, very true. The the other thing is a lot of a lot of. I have a friend of mine, specific friend of mine that I'll mention in Indiana, who installed a wind turbine in his backyard. And next thing, he got a knock at the door, and they told him he had to take it down. It was not allowed to have uh, wind-powered generation hooked up to his house. And he said, excuse me, and I guess there's some provision in there in his county law that says people are not allowed to have wells, they're not allowed to have solar, nor are they allowed to have wind energy in his county. Uh, they have to be on the grid. And he was like, oh, no, I don't think so. So what he did is he found an old shipyard that has those those uh, ship bells, you know, the, the big tubes that they talk into. Mm -hmm. And he bought one of those and put it in his backyard as an ornament. And it spins so the wind catches it. And inside of that, he has a vertical wind turbine that you can't even see. So he has wind turbine power and no one even knows he has it. Nice. <laughs> so, you know... To me, uh, which I think is ludicrous that, you know, you, you pay property taxes, you pay a mortgage payment, but you can't have whatever you want on your property. That that just has completely blown my mind for many years. Well, unfortunately, I have to say that I have some limitations like that. Now, solar panels are perfectly acceptable where I live. Several of my neighbors have them, and I need to make that investment soon. But there are some things that they do limit you. However, where I am, it's not as limited as in, in most places. So we, we can still do, we, we can, you know, create a lot of preps where I live, It's even though it's suburban. 
Exactly. I mean, you could you can do solar panels for electricity. You can do solar hot water. Um, you know, you can do wind power. I mean, there's all things that you can do that are. It's the initial cost is in the equipment, but it's all free down the road, and it pays for itself repeatedly, especially when you have a power outage. When you're the only house on the block that has its lights on and still has its food cold and can still do the normal things that you want to do, you can take a hot shower because you can still have hot water through solar energy. Why wouldn't you? Yeah, where I live, there's no restrictions on gardening either. Well, I shouldn't say that. The only restriction they have on gardening is that it can't be seen. Well, that's that's very easy to conceal. Well, my backyard's fully fenced anyway. Yeah. I got a wood fence. So, I mean, as long as something doesn't grow taller than six foot tall, uh, if it's not an approved tree, for example, as long as my garden doesn't grow more than six feet and, and you know, be seen over the fence, I'm okay. So you, you wouldn't want to grow bamboo, but otherwise you're safe. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll grow, you know, bush beans instead of uh, pole beans that like to get tall, you know. Exactly. So, uh, stuff even, like that. Even, in, even in, in and of itself, you can do that if you put in uh, one of those terrarium windows in your kitchen like a lot of people do. You can do container gardening right on your windowsill inside your house. Right. So who's, you know, who's really going to see that? Not, you know, it's, it's decorative plants as far as most people are concerned because most people wouldn't even have a clue what you're growing in there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and my next door neighbor, he's got a real nice garden in his backyard. And one of the things that, too, that, uh, you know, the last time I was talking to him, you know, well, he's he's trying to figure out a way to expand it and things like that. And uh, he just, you know, we we were chatting about that. He says, I just got to make sure I don't grow anything that can't be, you know, that can be seen by the other neighbors. Yeah. Which, you know, I don't understand. It's not like it's some hideous looking uh, plan or something. I mean, you know, most of it is greenery to begin with, so I don't understand why that would be a problem. But, you know, everybody has their own little problems, idiosyncrasies with stuff like that, I guess. Yeah. But Uh, so 90 to 95% you're hunting and gathering. Yes. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, I I have another client who uh, I set him up with a rain catchment system off of his his gutter system on his house, and he put uh, five 55-gallon drums behind his house, the blue ones, and then built a little picket fence to go around to hide them. But one of the neighbors up the hill from him could see the tops of them and called a complaint. So the city came and made him remove them, said he can't have that because it's an eyesore. So what we did is we found this company that makes water bladders that stores right underneath his deck, and he can store 1,500 gallons in this water bladder underneath his deck. Nice. And nobody sees it. It's black. It looks like the dirt, basically, and you can't even see it under there. Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of creative ways where there's a will, there's a way, and if you if you study up on this stuff, you're going to figure out how to do it and adapt it to your way of life. Exactly, but that's that's my point of practicing your preps so that you know what you have when the time comes that you need it. You know, things like that. I mean, you know, they they barely use that guy barely uses city water anymore. He uses off his water bladder. But, you know, he's always constant, uh, care, keeping constant vigilance over is the water, you know, make sure it's not getting stagnant, make sure it's not getting any algae or bacteria in it. Um, he took that bladder and lined it with copper tubing that he went and bought. And so, the, you know, it's antimicrobial as far as that goes. You know, so those, those are the kind of things that you have to practice as you do it. You can't just buy the stuff and say, okay, I'm good to go. Yeah. So... Another question. Let's kind of shift gears a little bit here. Okay. What do you like to hunt? 
Um, basically, you, if it's huntable, I hunt it. Um, one of my favorites uh, is caribou meat. I, I love it. I've been hunting caribou since the 80s. Um, another one is elk. That would be probably my second favorite. And then venison or deer meat would be my third uh, as far as red meat goes. Um, yeah. But I also, I've also hunted turkeys. Um, you know, I've, I've, I, I grew up with a, I, I have a cousin who had a dairy farm when I was growing up, and I used to go there and, um, you know, he raised all natural chickens. So I learned how to catch the chickens and, and clean the chicken, butcher the chickens, clean them, cook them. Uh, milk the cows, you know, all that kind of stuff. But uh, as far as hunting goes, it, it would those would be my top three for meat, and then uh, uh, the turkey for uh, fowl. Yeah, I still remember how to butcher, butcher chickens and butcher ducks, and milk cows and goats. All that stuff I did when I was a teenager and young adult. Mm-hmm. You know, you never really forget that stuff. No, you don't forget, but um, you know, you still need to keep. In practice, because sometimes you might be like, oh, you know, you might miss a step that you should have done, you know, because you did, you haven't been doing it on a regular basis. So you should keep in practice every so often, at least with something like. If you learned it when you were young, you're more apt to remember it when you get older. But if you start when you're older, you're less apt to remember it all. So you should keep practice on all of that stuff. Yeah. Do you hunt with firearms or with a bow? Uh, mostly with bow and arrow. Yeah. Caribou. Yes. Yes. How caribou, you you caribou. how do you get that close to them? Uh, caribou are surprisingly easy to get close to. Really? Yes. I I, I used to go to Canada uh, to hunt them, but uh, the last few that I've gotten, I've gotten up in Alaska, and the, the closest one that I ever shot was seven feet from me. Seven feet? Seven feet, not yards. Seven feet. Wow. Yeah, and I was in a cluster of grass. Uh, and it, it walked right past me, and I didn't even think, my, because it was so close, I didn't even think that my arrow was going to be powerful enough to penetrate, but it did penetrate the right lung and got and nicked the top of the heart. And uh, it, I was able, I, it, it ran 150 yards uh, from me, but I was able to see it out on the plane running across where it dropped. Uh, but seven feet was, they're, they're actually surprisingly very docile and very easygoing animals. They're not as skittish as deer and elk and whatnot um, because they're out on the plains and they can see further for the most part. So they're, they have a, a longer range of vision than most of the other herbivores that you see that are in woodland areas. So uh, they're not afraid of a lot of things unless it looks like a typical predator that they're used to, you know, the wolves and bears and whatnot. Mm-hmm. They're not that afraid of humans at all. Do you hunt small game too? Uh, yes, also, yeah, lots of squirrels, lots of like ptarmigan and uh, uh, rock chucks and things. Yeah, I, that that keeps me actually uh, sharp with my bow and arrow uh, to hunt small game like that. Yeah, I bet it does. But those are basically like your, you know, you you want an afternoon snack, so you go out and you find yourself a squirrel. <laughs> you know. <laughs> The big meat is for your long, long winter sustainability that you're going to be eating off of for months. So I'll bet where you live, your your self defense needs might be against animals. Uh, more so than, than against humans, yes. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought. Yeah. So it, yeah, there's there's more, uh, you know, more moose, uh, more bison that comes through the area, uh, you know, and in the fall time especially. 
the bison and the moose get the males get very very uh, aggressive. Yeah, so I don't don't think I want to be in, uh, near uh, one of those pissed off at me. No, they're they're actually more dangerous than a than a grizzly bear in the fall when it's rut time. Yeah. So a moose will trample you just for no reason, just simply because he's in the rut. He's crazed. Is uh, and you're there. Yeah, you're there. That's he's in the rut. He's crazed. You're in his way. That's the end of the story. That's exactly right. And more people than than you probably ever heard about have been gored and trampled by moose by a bull moose. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so what's your defense against uh, that guy? Uh, you you want to be very careful when you're in the woods. I mean, most of the time when I'm out, I know how they smell when it's rut time because the males are, you know, urinating and making wallows and the elk are making scrapes. And, you know, you know their, you pretty much know their territory of where they're going to be looking for mates. Uh, so I, I try to avoid those areas in the fall as much as possible, but I can smell them. A lot of people don't don't know what the smell is, and they're just wondering through thinking an animal you know went to the bathroom and it stinks because of that, but that's not what it is at all. Um, so I know the smells, and I know to avoid those areas when I smell that in the air. Yeah, good. Yeah, and that's, you know, a lot of people who like to spend time in the wilderness probably don't understand, and I'm sure you probably teach this, you know, you probably teach them how to recognize those signs because I'm sure a lot of people get caught by surprised, or caught caught surprised by angry uh, elk and, and moose and things. Yeah, I had I had some people that I took out. Uh, this was probably about uh, twelve or thirteen years ago, and we were out on the trail, and they had a little boy with them, and then this little boy ran ahead. And he was playing in what he thought was a mud puddle, and it happened to be a moose wallow. And it was urine in this moose wallow because that's uh-huh. what they do. And the people were like, wow, what is that smell? You know, they thought something had died and was rotting. And here I get, we get up there, and here's this kid playing in this mud puddle that wasn't a mud puddle. And so the whole rest of the weekend, uh, we had to deal with this kid smelling like uh, moose urine. <laughs> So, yeah, those, those kind of things that, you know, that you teach people, that is not a mud puddle, this is what it is, you know. And <laughs> they, they, you know, well, why is it so big? It looks like, you know, yeah, well, because moose is a big animal, you know. I mean, that's why it's so big. <laughs> so Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, there's, yeah, you, uh, if you don't know what it is when you're out there, uh, you either learn very quickly by the smell or, you know, I can see this little kid. Oh, look at this nice little pond to play in, you know? That's basically what he was doing. No, Johnny, it's not a pond. No, it's not a pond. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah, and he had to sleep in their tent with them for the weekend, so. Okay. Yeah. Well, hopefully he won't make that mistake again. No, I think he learned his lesson because, see, you know, Mom, I want to take a bath. I stink. Well, (laughs) Don't take a bath in one of those ponds again, Johnny. <laughs> exactly. 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 All right. So what else, what other kinds of, of little tidbits do you want to share with folks about, you know, about living it, practicing it, and making it part of your life? Well, one of the, uh, another big point, you know, the last show that we did, I talked about uh, the article I wrote on doing the, the backpacks for the family and make them color-coordinated to your your family member's favorite color and making sure you have two packs, one in your main vehicle, one in your home. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I've gotten a lot of emails and questions from people uh, about, you know, what should I put in my packs? And, 
you know, that really is subjective, number one, to your demographic, to your topography, and to your personal needs. Right. Um, you know, if, if you have a family member that's diabetic, obviously you're going to want to have some form of insulin pen in their pack that if you need to, you know, leave quickly, you have, they have their insulin. Or if you have somebody that's allergic to certain things, you want to have like an EpiPen in their pack, you know. So it, it, the, the basic things obviously are water, fire, and shelter. I mean, those are the three basics that you need to have no matter what. Because even if you have a vehicle and can go somewhere, you may need to fortify that vehicle if it's 20 below to keep it warmer so that you don't freeze to death inside that tin box. Sure. Um, so, you know, those are, those, are some kind, those are three basics that are kind of important. And then if you, if you need to on that vehicle, you can use all kinds of things for starting fires or, you know, increasing your shelter or whatever. Um, food is, is, would be number four. You want to make sure you have some kind of food. But then from that point on, like your clothing layers, that's going to depend. Are you in the southwest where it doesn't get as cold as it does up in the northwest or northeast? Are you, know, are you in a rainy area like Portland, Oregon, where you're going to definitely need warmer, drier gear? Um, you know, so that's, that's, that all depends on your area and, and where you're planning on going. I mean, if you're, if you're living down in, in Texas where you are and your family's up in Wisconsin and you're heading to Wisconsin, obviously you're going to want to have some things that on the way you can transition from the hotter, drier weather into the colder, wetter weather, you know, right. especially for this time of year. Especially for this time of year, yes. Yeah, you know, so it's, it's important, but you you have to look at what, uh, you also have to, what you're going to put in that pack, you need to know how to use. If you don't know how to use it, don't carry it in your pack. Right. Um, there's, a, there's a guy that I know on YouTube that just did a, a bug out experiment. I was watching his videos. And he came back and, and did a, a review on his pack of what he did and didn't use. Now, th- that is twofold because, okay, in the scenario, because he, apparently he asked his subscribers, what do you think I should put in my bug out pack to take with me on this experiment? So he had suggestions and he took what people suggested. Now, when he got back, he says, well, I didn't use this, I didn't use this, I didn't use this, I didn't use this. Okay, for that particular scenario you didn't use it does that mean you'll never need it no not not necessarily um so you you really need to practice with this stuff so that you know what you're going to need what you you do need to kind of refine your uh, provisions down to what you will actually use not just well i'm going to take this just because i feel better you need to know that if you can't use it why carry the extra weight and why take up the space of something else you may be able to use with something you're not ever going to use because you have it as a security thing. So you need, you need to practice with those packs, and that's what people ask. Well, how often should I practice? You know, I would say at least maybe once, four times a year, once every, every quarter, so every season, because spring is different from summer, which is different from fall, which is different from winter. So you, you, your provisions may change through the season. So in the springtime, you you know may need something for more rain. In the summer, you may need something to keep you more hydrated. In the fall, you may need something to keep you a little warmer. And in the winter, you're going to need something to keep you warm a lot warmer. Right. So you know you, you're gonna your your pack is going to change as you go through the seasons of the year for one thing, and you know things can get. Um, outdated or old or dried up or you know maybe don't work anymore. Um, you know if you carry paper matches, you're going to want to make sure that you rotate those books of matches in your pack every you know every quarter year. I, 
easily because they do get to the point where they don't work anymore. Yeah, well, I do something similar. I have to admit, I don't, I don't practice as much as I should. So thanks for reminding me. I'm going to do some more practicing. But I do rotate three to four times a year. Yeah, so, which is good. That's what you should do. And, and with you, you know, I know that you, you, you take a lot of classes through Suarez International you know, for firearms. And I know that you teach a lot of classes. But here's one thing I put to you is, you should, as an instructor, I think one of the classes that you should probably do is getting your, your ready-to-go pack, your bug-out pack or whatever you want to call it, and teaching a class on not only firearm shooting, but what if you're, in, what if you're under a situation where you need to use your firearm, but you also have to use provisions in your pack while you're under the duress and stress of having to be in a firefight? That's a great idea. That's um, Thanks for that idea. That might be something that I teach independently because Suarez International doesn't offer a class like that. But that's an excellent idea. I could have all the students show up with their their bug-out bags or their emergency kits or whatever it is that they want to talk or call them, and, uh, and they've got to both fight with their firearm and use items in their pack. Exactly. I mean, you know, there, there might be something. Maybe you're trying to protect your family. From, from looters that are trying to come and take your stuff. So you, you're in a firefight trying to protect your family, and you're trying to, you know, maybe your son's dehydrating. You need, to, you know, you're trying to get water for him, or you know, some, you just you don't know. If you have small children, small children, especially in a situation like that of chaos, they, you know, it's hard enough for them to understand in times of calm. A lot of times, what you want them to do because they're they're not mature enough mentally to understand. Okay, get dad the bottle of water out of my pack and. You know, they could be going through every pocket not finding a bottle of water because they don't understand where it is in Dad's pack. So you might need to be getting water for them because they're they're extremely dehydrated and you know maybe going into uh, having seizures from not having enough water. And you're trying to protect your family while getting water. You know, so there's all these things that can come into play. Is it likely it'll happen? Maybe not. But is it something that's good to know and be trained in? Absolutely. Well, yeah, it is. And, you know, you bring up the likelihood of happening. Well, you know, earlier I asked you the question, you know, about your self-defense and, you know, you have to protect yourself against angry, an angry moose, for example. Well, to those of us in cities or suburbs, we have to protect ourselves not against an angry moose, but a two-legged critter who just smoked a bunch of crack or he's drunk, he's drunk or he's, you know, whatever. He's trying to get his fix. And, and that's the critters that we've got to protect against. Well, exactly, and, and one of the things um, you know, I, I I don't really I don't watch TV that much. I, I good some shows that uh, good I've been, I've been told about. I'll, I'll watch online when I get on the internet, which I don't. I haven't been able to do much uh, recently, but I, I I do check YouTube every now and then because I'm kind of curious what people are putting out there in the way of information they're giving people on preparedness and survival and things of that nature. And I see a lot of people, uh, well, a prime example is I just saw an, an article, a, a video clip of another guy from the show, Doomsday Preppers, who was raided by the FBI, and all of his guns were confiscated. And here's my thing. Why would you ever put that kind of information out on national TV? What, what, did, he, not, what, what, not, what did he put out there? He, he, he went on that show, Doomsday Preppers. Yeah. And after he was on Doomsday Preppers, the FBI came and raided his house and took all of his guns and a lot of his preps. Well, first of all, let me back up. For what reason did they raid his house? They never did really say why they raided his house. That's what I would like to know, why they raided his house. Well, why did he allow him allow them to raid his house? Apparently, he wasn't home at the time of the raid. 
They yeah. They a search warrant. and, and Oh, they got a warrant, huh? Yeah, they got a warrant and raided his house while he wasn't there. Now, my first question is, why would you go on a national TV show and show what kind of preps you have? Yeah. I don't understand that. Because if I live in your neighborhood and I'm, I, I'm Lazy Joe in my recliner watching TV thinking that I'm all that with my six-pack and my bag of Cheetos, and I see, oh, my neighbor down the street has got all these preps, he's got all these guns, got all this food, got all this you know stuff ready, and a disaster happens, where do you think I'm going? Yeah. I'm going to my neighbor's house because he's got all the preps that I need. I don't have to do anything because he's right down the road. He's got everything ready for me. Yeah. Well, well good luck coming to my house. Well, you know, and, and I, with, with a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot of people, with some of the people I know, absolutely, I would be like, oh, I would never even, I wouldn't come within 100 yards of their house without announcing myself prior because I know how they are. But not everybody's of that mindset. You know, right. A lot of people are out there for the glorification of, oh, I'm a prepper and I'm ready to go. I, I just I don't understand why people put it out on YouTube. You know, they show their gun safes full of guns. They show their food stocks in, in their in their little safe room. They show their medical equipment. They show you know all, why why do you need to put that out there? Why do people need to know about that? I mean, that's a good point. That's a good point. I mean, you know, you kind of make me think a little bit because you know I I get on the internet and I I talk to people all over the world about you know, about prepping and about firearms and things like that. So if people just, you know, listen to a few of my shows, they can probably get a pretty good idea in their mind of, of what I got, although I don't talk about everything I have. Yeah, um, exactly. But but you're you're not showing, uh, you know, talking about things that you have is, is an audio uh, right. podcast is a lot different than a visual of exactly what that person has. Well, you're right. And you know what? And that is one reason why I haven't gone on YouTube to show preps. Now, the only thing you're going to see me on YouTube doing is firearms training. You know? Yeah. And I have seen you do a few item reviews like CRKT knives. You know, you've done a couple of reviews on things like that. And oh, yeah. You know, which is fine. I mean, that, you know, that's great. But, but yeah, you're not putting yourself out there saying, "Oh, here I am." You know, I'm going to be a glory hound to show you everything that I have because I'm Joe Prepper Cool. Well, you're right. That is, it makes you kind of wonder why someone would do that. You're right. Yeah, you know, and, and I mean, people have asked me. They're like, "Well, you know, show us what you know what you have. Show it." And it's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that because what I have is for me and for my family, not to show to everybody else. Like, I don't need to show everybody else what I have. I know what I have. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know what? You said something a few minutes ago that I've really never talked much about, and I'm glad you put the thought in my mind. You said that there are some people that will that will look at their neighbor and say, oh, look at that guy over there. Look at all the preps he has over there. I don't need to prep because if things go bad, all i got to do is go over to my neighbors and either take it or convince him to help me or whatever. Yeah. I want to say to people, if... And I've seen people on forums post this, and it drives me nuts. If you are the kind of person, or if you know somebody that's the kind of person that thinks that they can go to somebody else's house and take by force whatever they need, I think, first of all, number one, shame on you. Number two, you are sorely mistaken if you really believe you're going to pull that off and get everything you need. 
Well, that yeah, I, I see your point, but uh, I don't know if you remember the gentleman from Hurricane Katrina, the Vietnam veteran who, a former Marine that was, uh, had a stockpile of guns in his house, and the looters came and they took almost all of his guns. Uh, he was able to save three guns and get up on his roof with them, but he had no ammo other than what was in the guns because they, they knew he had the guns and they came and took them out of his house. Why did he let them come take him out of his house? He, he didn't know they were coming, and they stor- basically stormtrooped the house and took his guns. And that was, that was one of the incidents that led up to the, uh, uh, where the uh, National Guard came in, and they, they started confiscating everybody's weapons and whatnot because he had called the police, and, and, uh, or I shouldn't say called the police. He found a policeman and told the policeman what had happened. And that was one of the things, the incidents that instituted them confiscating all the firearms because they were worried about people going around stealing everybody's guns that had them in that area. So yeah, okay, yeah, I think now I remember that. But but see now, now you just brought up a great point to have plenty of good surveillance around your property. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and also. I don't know if you've heard some of the podcasts I've done with Glenn Tate, but you know we've talked about building a prepper team, and you know th- th- this is where if you've got a team in place, if you've got people who can assist you, maybe be on the lookout. That that'll be you know helpful in that situation as well. Yeah, and, and I'm I'm uh, I'm kind of on the edge about that. To me, it's like a double-edged sword, and the reason I say that is because okay, you have. You build your prepper team. Now, you have, uh, uh, I'll say, let, for sake of this, I'll say Larry Moe and Curly, okay? We all know who that is. Um, <laughs> I love but, that, Joe. But you have Larry Moe and Curly who are, are friends and they're, they're building their prepper team. Now, Larry may have more guns and more food because maybe his family's bigger than Moe's. And Moe may have, uh, you know, more in the way of ammunition than Larry or Curly. So, you know, the thing is, is that when push comes to shove and things come down to the nitty gritty, how much can you really trust that person that you're putting your trust in, in your prepper team? Because if I have a family and you have a family and my family's running out of provisions, am I going to say, well, you know, I know Bob has, has a family. He's got more food, so I, I'm not going to worry about my family. I'm just going to let him go. Or am I going to say, you know what? My family comes first. Screw Bob and his family. I need what Bob has because I'm running out. Well, your point is true, and I'm not saying put 100% faith and confidence into the members of your team, but um, I think it could be an asset, especially if there's some kind of a disaster and you need some people to help you uh, with some surveillance, for example, to see if looters are coming and things like that. Yeah, that, that's very true. You know, or your neighbors. It doesn't even have to be your prepper team; just your neighbors. If you've, you know, if you've if you've discussed this with some people and you've and you've had these discussions with people that will listen, uh, I think sometimes you can be on the lookout for each other. That's true. I, me personally, I think if if I was to live in, in a suburban area, my first thought would be not to keep most of my provisions in my home. My first thought would be to have something uh, like a reinforced RV or something of that nature where I keep most of my preps in that vehicle so if the stink hits the fan, I can load my family in that vehicle and I'm out of there. And I don't have to worry. You want to come and loot my house? You're not going to get anything because there's nothing there. Everything I have is, I'm basically a turtle. 
and everything's you know on my back and I'm I'm out of there where I can get to a a more advantageous point where I can concentrate on protecting my family and what I have and not having to worry about you know, are the wolves going to come and try to, you know, take out the sheep? So in that situation that you just described, you'd be more inclined to bug out rather than bug in. Exactly. exactly. Okay. Well, and and everybody everybody seems to have their own philosophy about that. It seems like I, I hear just as many people that want to bug in as those that want to bug out. Well, you know, and, and I, I've, I've heard that controversy, you know, especially since uh, this whole bug in, bug out thing has gotten... Uh, you know, such a hot become such a hot topic, but you know, look, let's look at New Orleans again with with the Hurricane Katrina. I mean, that's a prime example, or, or or Sandy. I mean, that's a prime example of how things can go bad quickly. You know, yep. And look look at all the all the people that were uh, neighbors and they turned on each other. Uh, you know, immediately because they they didn't. You know, they lost everything. I mean, their houses were under. You know. 12 foot of water and they, they lost a lot of the things that they had so even if you have the prep stored if you have something like Katrina you may not have those preps they may be floating down the river literally you know? well that's true uh, my, my you know if I knew Katrina was coming I would have been in, in my vehicle and I would have been out of there all you would have seen was the taillights as I was in the you know going into the sunset because there's no way I'd stick around a situation like that you, you know I, I think for personal safety and your family safety, I think the best thing to do is to find a more advantageous point to regroup and and get your thoughts together and decide where you're going to go from that point. And if you have all your provisions in a vehicle where you don't have to worry about guarding your home or guarding your family or what's going to happen if, you know, uh, you have criminals that are uh, running rampant like they did in parts of New Orleans when I was down there after Katrina. Uh, you know, looting going on. You got you know military coming in and, and state police and everything else. Why would you want to stick around and put yourself and your family in harm's way of that instead of getting to a point where you don't have to worry about that and you only have to worry about yourself and, and maintaining your own family? And that's a very good point, which leads me to the final question I wanted to ask you. And you and I were talking a little bit about it offline before we started this podcast, and that is a bug out vehicle. You were kind of giving me some pretty good ideas about about a bug out vehicle why don't you uh talk about that well you know a, a lot of people go back and forth between oh you should have a gas vehicle or you should have a diesel vehicle and people i hear people well it doesn't matter if the gas station shut down you're not going to get any fuel anyhow well uh, i've i've done a lot of research on this and i've spent a lot of time and i've had multiple vehicles that are diesel and you can run a diesel vehicle, especially an older mechanical diesel engine, anything that's pre-2000 that doesn't have the, the computers and electronics on them, you can run on old motor oil, old vegetable oil, biodiesel, diesel obviously. Um, you know, anything that's an oil-based compound, you can put into those old mechanical diesel engines and you can run it. And, and, and if, the, if the grid goes down and all the gas stations were to shut down, and especially if you have a vehicle that has a, a two-tank system, which a lot of the older trucks have, you can have one tank for your for your alternate fuel, your you know your oil or your your motor oil or whatever it might be, and the other tank for your diesel. And all you have you only have to use a little bit of diesel uh, in to start the engine and get it up to operating temperature. Switch over to oil, and then when you're going to shut down 
for the, the day or the night, you switch it back over to purge the engine of all the oil and get diesel back in there so it'll start up in the next day, and you shut it down. Um, I had a van that was a two-tank diesel, one-ton diesel, and I literally drove it from Portland, Oregon to Portland, Maine on $15 in diesel. No kidding. The rest of it was all vegetable oil. So there are many, many more alternatives for a diesel engine than there are for a gas engine. So, yes, I would say fine. diesel engines are stronger. They, they get better mileage. They run longer with, with less maintenance. They're, easy, they're actually easier to work on than a gas engine. Um, so my suggestion would be to find a diesel vehicle, something like maybe a diesel, an old diesel pickup, put a truck camper on the back, um, or, or an old, uh, an old like, uh, Greyhound bus or an old school bus, and, and you can convert it into whatever kind of a quote-unquote bug-out vehicle you want to make it. And you're saying an older one pre-year 2000? Pre-2000, yeah. That's, that's when they had the older mechanical engines in them. Uh, the old Dodges with the 12-valve Cummins or the old Fords with the 7.3 or 6.9 liters uh, engines in them. Um, the, the GMs, you know, they had the old 6.2 diesel and the 6.5 diesel, but uh, the 6.2s were actually gas engines they converted to make into diesel. They're not that great of an engine, but they will run on the alternative fuels. Yeah. Good, good advice. Really good. You got me thinking now. I mean, you know, a lot of people. I see a lot of pictures. People post their bug out vehicles on on uh, forums, or they put them up on YouTube and things. And a lot of them are real modern gasoline vehicles. Yeah, they, you know, they really are. And you know, and, and people want modern because hey, it's it's got the latest, greatest, and it's under warranty. And it's got all this and that. But you know. Uh, uh, like we were talking before the broadcast, you know, and, and not to try to get tinfoil hat on people, but if if for some reason a government decided to affect uh, uh, a an EMP, new vehicles are dead in the water. You're not going to go anywhere because they have all the electronics and computers and everything on them, and an EMP will take those out as, in the blink of an eye. Yeah, that's right. The old mechanical engines, not going to happen. They're pretty much impervious to that kind of stuff. Carbureted mechanical engines. Exactly, exactly. And the diesel, the old diesel engines are, you know, they're workhorses. They last, you know, easily a million miles. Um, you know, and, and here's, here's the funny thing that most people don't know. When Rudolf Diesel invented the diesel engine back in 1902, which actually, you know, it's been it's been 111 years now since that engine was invented. But when he invented that, he invented it to run on vegetable oil. Really? There was no such thing as diesel fuel at that point. He, the reason that they did it was, that he invented it was because there was such a, you know, restaurants were becoming more popular and people were using vegetable oil. They were creating more vegetable oil. There was actually a surplus of vegetable oil back in the early 1900s. And he was trying to find some way to use that as an alternative fuel to gasoline. And he invented the diesel engine because he, he understood the properties of how, how oil combusted under pressure, under heat and pressure. That's how the diesel engine was even invented was through the use of vegetable oil. So, you know, most people think that, that – Waste oil is something new, you know, it's a relatively new thing, and it's not. That's how the diesel engine was born. Interesting. Uh, now, I, I got to admit, I didn't know all that. 
Yeah, so you know, it's 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 kind of interesting that, and the reason that it didn't go anywhere for many many years was because the oil companies saw that he could do this, and it was cheap because vegetable oil was very very cheap back then, and you know you could basically run this engine for free. So that's why the the oil companies kind of put the kibosh on it and said, oh no no no, we can't have this cutting into our profits. We can't do that. So. Pretty much the diesel engine died at that point, and you didn't hear anything of it until, you know, right around the mid-1940s after World War II. Wow. Um, a lot of that history about that that you just shared, I did not know that. Um, thanks for sharing that with the listeners. Yeah, well, you know, I, I just think, you know, it's interesting how people, you know, think that a diesel engine is basically something modern and new, and that waste, waste fresh oil conversion is something modern and new, and it's really not. It's, I mean, it's... That's how the engine was, was made in the first place. The old is forever new. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> well, good. This is a good stopping point. White Bear, this was awesome. A lot of awesome information. Why don't you tell people, especially those that have not checked you out and, and listened to you or watched your, your stuff before, where can they find you? Talk about your website, your school, where you're teaching, YouTube channel, all that stuff. Um, well, the website is PLSS livingwild.com and there's all kinds of great information on there about the tribal gatherings that I have um, and I'm going to be doing some reduction in prices because uh, of the, the way things are going economically I, I've tried to keep my, my class prices, my gathering prices low to begin with uh, but I know there's a lot of people that want to want to learn and want to uh, take some of my courses but just don't have the money because of economic reasons so I'm going to be reducing the price at the beginning of next year, uh, a little more than I did for this year. And uh, there's some information about my uh, environmentally sustainable earth shelter program on the front page. Um, and it's it's becoming very popular with people wanting to get into the solar and wind power, like I said, and how to altern- al- have alternatives to uh, grid power and uh, you know collecting water and things of that nature. Uh, YouTube, you can go on YouTube. It's youtube.com slash primitive living. And I also have uh, my Barefoot Bushrat channel about being barefoot. So it's uh, youtube.com slash barefoot bushrat. And you can find me on uh, any one of those uh, mediums and, of course, uh, the other two podcasts that I've done with you. Yeah. And in case you didn't, in case some of you might be listening to this while you're working out or driving or something like that, um, just go to todayssurvival.com, click the show notes for this episode can't remember exactly what episode number this is, but anyway, I'll talk about it in the introduction. And I'll put a link to his website and his in both of his YouTube channels there, too. Yeah, and, and uh, I, I do know that I did the uh, Survival Champions podcast with you. Yes, and, uh, yes, you contributed some good stuff on that. Don't don't forget to, uh, to uh, sign up and get Bob's uh, other Survival Champion po- uh, podcast, because I know he's got some great information in those. Thank you, Wiper. Yes, you're one of the contributors. I did not forget about that. I'm glad you reminded me to talk about it on this show. And uh, matter of fact, when I do the conclusion of this, I'll be talking more about that. Yeah, I, I, I think, too, maybe uh, something that we could do down the road is, is get uh, some of the other podcast contributors all together, maybe on a, a conference podcast and, and kind of uh, do... Uh, a mishmash of all of our skills put together in, in one show. That is a good idea. I'd like to get you and Glenn Tate and and uh, and, and Joe and Dave in Northeast Texas and um, uh, Tabitha out there in Oregon and, and so forth. Get them all to get all you guys together on on Skype. We need to do that. 
Yeah, it's, it's a good way to uh, talk about, you know, regional survival and how, how it can play a part in uh, being prepared, you know, uh, uh, if you had to travel across the country for any reason in, in the event that you needed to bug out, as they say. We need to get my two ham radio guests on, too. Yeah, that's I, yeah, because I, I, I'm getting more into the ham radio so that I have uh, communications uh, where I live, and I, you know, that would be very interesting. That's a good idea. I'm going to try to put something like that together before the end of the year. I'll start reaching out to some people. Yeah, I do a holiday uh, group podcast. <laughs> yeah, that'd be good. All right, White Bear, thanks very much for coming on the show. I appreciate that. This was excellent. Thanks, Bob. I uh, enjoyed doing it. Take care. You too. Good stuff, huh? Hopefully you got some great ideas from that. White Bear, thank you very much. Once again, in the show notes, I'm going to put a link to his YouTube channel and to his website, and you'll get a chance to check that out. Look at some of his videos. He's got great videos up there. And also, if you can get to one of his classes, shoot him an email possibly. He's also on the forum asking questions about the classes. Since I brought up the forum... Let me just say, uh, if you want to converse with people that interview on this show, like White Bear and many of the other guests I've had, and other listeners, and me, would you consider joining today's Survival Show Forum? Uh, it's a small group, but it's a well-controlled and a nice group, and we talk about some excellent ideas. We bounce things back and forth, and most people have been giving me feedback saying it's very helpful. I just need you to do me a favor. If you sign up for the forum, Please send me an email and tell me that you signed up and give me your username. Uh, that's how I keep spammers out. That's way, that way I know you're a real person and you're listening to the show. So just go to todayssurvival.com, click the forum button, register, and then send me an email. My email is bob at todayssurvival.com. If you like what I do on this show, have you noticed something? Have you noticed I don't have a bunch of ads, I don't have commercials, I don't ramble on 6 to 8 minutes, 15 minutes of podcast talking about sponsors and, and, and trying to push products and things like that. I believe in trying to keep this as commercial free as I can. If you like what I do and you want to support me and support my efforts, you heard White Bear bring up my Survival Champions Club. That's a collection of podcasts that are exclusive. I've never put them on the public show like you're listening to right now. Glenn Tate, the author of the book series 299 Days, contributed some information about uh, building a prepper team. White Bear, that you just heard now, he contributed some information about survival mentors. John Neusser, who listens to this show, contributed some information about self-defense. Mexican Joe interviewed a guy that goes by the handle of Ghost, and he talked about militias and prepping, and a friend of mine named Wade in Louisiana, who's real good with herbs, contributed some information on herbs for medicinal purposes and for nutritional purposes, and my good friend Matt Chusnick, who's a blacksmith and an expert knife sharpener, uh, he contributed a lot of good information about sharpening knives and tools and things like that, so you can get any of these podcasts for $25 or you can get the whole collection for $75. So $25 each or the whole collection for $75. If you don't want to spend any extra money, you can also go to todayssurvival.com and you can shop on Amazon through my Amazon store. The holidays are coming up. If you're going to buy gifts for people, 
on Amazon or even for yourself, go to the Amazon store page at Today's Survival Show and, uh, excuse me, todayssurvival.com, my website, and click on the Amazon link that you see on my Amazon store page. Just do your shopping there and I'll get a little commission and that'll also help the show. So either one, uh, I think the Survival Champions Club has an incredible amount of benefit to it and you'll see that in the right-hand margin where it says Survival Champions Club at todayssurvival.com. Well, folks, thanks again for listening to this 229th episode of today's Survival Show. I'm Bob Main, helping you do what you can with what you have, wherever you are. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Goodbye.